Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to my guests, and we have two rock stars for you, I want to note that this week, the Man podcast begins its ninth year, which is completely preposterous and amazing. I'm so grateful to all of you for listening, to the hundreds of artists, art historians, and curators who've been willing to talk with me, and to the museums that advertise on the program. I hope and think we're making something that y'all can both enjoy week to week, and that will be an archive of the art and scholarship of our time, something that future critics and historians might find useful. That wouldn't be possible if y'all didn't listen and share the show with your friends. I don't often enough say thanks for listening, but thanks for listening. Before we get to the show, we're only a few dozen man podcast surveys away from statistical significance. If you haven't filled out our biennial survey yet, please, please, please go to manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. That's manpodcast2019.questionpro.com to fill it out. I promise it won't take more than five minutes. manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. And of course, I'll put a link to that site into this week's show notes. On to the program. First up this week, Nayland Blake. The Institute of Contemporary Art Los Angeles is exhibiting No Wrong Holes, 30 Years of Nayland Blake. Curated by Jamila James, the exhibition is the most comprehensive survey yet of Blake's art. It spotlights Blake's interest in feminism and queer liberation and their investigation of subcultures ranging from punk to the S&M and leather communities. The exhibition, which is on view through January 26, 2020, will be accompanied by a forthcoming catalog. On the second segment, Anne Hamilton. But first, Nayland Blake after the break. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tissot's spectacular world in James Tissot Fashion and Faith, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. In Recording Artists, a new podcast series by the Getty, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. Rare audio-taped interviews from the 1960s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists and art historians, help us unpack what it meant and still means to be a woman making art. Binge the entire series, starting November 12th, at getty.edu slash recordingartists. 
And we're back. Nayland and Blake, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, lovely to be here. One of the things I most gotten out of the show that's now at the ICALA is your work's relationship to binaries. In, in terms of your life outside the studio, you're biracial, and in the work you often address not having to choose whiteness or blackness. You reject binary pronouns. Sexuality in your work is rarely gay sexuality or straight sexuality. It's just sexuality. My sense, my, my very strong sense, given that every media outlet in America has profiled you in the last couple months, is that rejecting, <laughs> is that rejecting binaries is important to you in your day-to-day -day life. When did it become important to your art? I think that it has always been there, but I don't think that it has been as as clearly articulated as you just put it until you know, I would say perhaps the the last 20 years. I think that for me an ongoing question in the work has always been why do the same thing twice? If people have an expectation of the work, then how can I complicate that expectation? How can I complicate that expectation formally? How can I complicate it in terms of reference? How can I complicate it in terms of in terms of subject matter? Because the artists that have meant the most to me have often been artists who did that in their own work. And and for me, having someone have to work to connect the dots between the new work that they are seeing and the work that they knew previously means that they are actively viewing what I'm doing instead of just looking at it and going like, okay, yes, again, that's who that person is and turning around and walking away. Making complication core to the practice. Yes. And an artist who's always been really important to me is Ree Morton. And, and I think that her work was paradigmatic for that, where from show to show, it looked very, very different on the surface level. And then you had this sense of an ongoing emotional and intellectual curiosity that was willing to go branch off in many different directions. And that has always seemed to me like a real goal. You want to be able to keep yourself active and interested for as you know for as long as you're working well in a related story one of the interesting things to me about the oeuvre is how it has intently resisted ever falling into the realm of so-called identity art identity art in its simplest de definition is art that white men look at that doesn't come from the same place they are <laughs> or who they are so for example you've long made art that addresses sexuality, but that work includes critiques of art and references to the aesthetics of sex and sexuality, but it's never pigeonholing itself as, you know, air quotes, gay identity art. It is to borrow uh, from a vernacular pansexual in its, in its outlook. And there is, I think, maybe one exception in the ICLA, ICALA show, and it's a 2006 work called Hillbilly Collection. Is it an address of identity intended to side-eye the whole idea of identity art? <laughs> it's a very funny piece. We'll have an image on mainpodcast.com. I think the thing that's central to what I do is the notion of embodiment. And from very early on, 
I thought about the idea that that sexuality and sexual expression is expressed bodily and intellectually. And it's similar for any of these things that get called, you know, that that we think about as as minorities, right? That the category of blackness is a legal category that has very little to do with bodily experience or expression. And so for me, that particular piece, the sort of hillbilly collection piece, came out of, in part, my own interest in what are the ways in which whiteness is figured as a, as a sort of ideological construct and as a person who has different racial heritages to what extent am I a an inheritor of of that notion of whiteness in a certain way? I mean, you've you've met me, Tyler. Like I'm a big person with a lot of facial hair and tend to wear overalls. So in some ways, I pass as those hillbillies, right? And in what way is that class identification also tied up in there? Or, or to what extent is is geographic indicator or, I mean, because when we think of hillbillies, you know, we think of the Appalachians, right? You know, to what extent is, is you know, it's a work to me that also kind of points out the narrowness of reading a self-presentation into uh, geog- both class and geography in, in the same way that, you know, in, in 1980 San Francisco, a tight black t-shirt and mirrored sunglasses and a beard had a certain reading. It kind of punctures, punctures stereotype constructions in a way that I don't know. I you know when I saw it at the ICALA, I just laughed out loud, and somebody looked over at me like I was being rude. <laughs> you can think of my work as the work of somebody who was raised on on French theory and Looney Tunes, and so it's I have that image sensorium there, you know, there all the time that I'm constantly sort of pulling on. And if you look at it, there's those uh, sort of barefoot hillbilly characters in Warner Brothers cartoons, or, you know, as as Snuffy Smith, or, or you know, that character is around in comics and cartoons, as much as any of the other more well-known stereotypes that those that those things trafficked in and i have to admit like as a kid i you know i found some of those some of those hillbillies hot so there's also that like there's something you know there's something sexy about a guy in just a pair of overalls and bare feet and and a big beard there there are two other works that address i think with, with with a good bit of humor identity that are that are in the show one is equipment from a shameful epic from 1993 which might actually be the last work in the show to me it's a work that kind of pokes fun at identity as being something we put on equipment from a shameful epic is is kind of a we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com of course but it's kind of like a clothes rack that includes clothing some of it under dry cleaning style plastic a bunny suit hanging on a hanger those kind of masks of another person's head that you pull over your own head, you know, that that are famous from heist movies. How much did you think of that as, or do you think of that as a work that, that addresses identity as something we put on and how much of it had 
other maybe more specific given the year political motivations or information it's basically everything that you need to perform a script that is that is actually there on the rack as well in a binder and the the script is a kind of mashup of the Watergate transcripts and uh, the Pinocchio story with some other uh, stuff from Iran-Contra in there as well. And so it's the masks are all sort of political figures, Nixon, Reagan. And another big impact on what I do or another artist that I look to a lot is the theater artist Richard Foreman, whose work I've seen a lot of and who... I, you know, always have had a sort of like fanboy crush on not not um, sexually, but but as an but as a creator, because I feel like those his his work is all about staging thought in all of its like complexity and elliptical nature and erratic movements back and forth. And so in 93, I was thinking about how do you I can't quite get it together to make my own stage play addressing all of this stuff. But what if I provided the kit for somebody else to do it, right? What if there was a model of theater that you kind of had the, you kind of had the script, you had everything that you needed to sort of fulfill the script, and then you had a more sort of improvised play situation. And so that's, that's in some ways what that piece is pointing towards something that then ended up happening later on in 97. Um, I was commissioned by the Brooklyn Academy of Music to make a collaborative theater piece. And uh, I made this piece, uh, Hair Follies, with four collaborators. We, at that point, that was a staging again of a kind of mashup collaged script that was more specifically looking at issues of like internalized racism and 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 rhetorics of of racial complexity. And so in that case I actually got to like make all the set, make the props, stage the thing and perform in it. But I think equipment for a shameful epic is sort of the the sketch for what that would become. I guess one last thing on 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 the rejection of identity art and and the narrowness of single identities. There's a recent piece from 2018 uh, in the show. It's untitled that features, um, among other things, uh, the starfield of an American flag, a bit of camouflage, and and hankies, all textiles, of course, against a blue textile background. It's a piece that, to my read, is kind of about equalizing signifiers and i guess i wonder what in informed it it also ha- has in it uh, the camouflage is actually a part of a worn out pair of cargo shorts that i had for a few years and it peeks out from underneath the starfield yeah it also has this cut apart dress that was worn by somebody that I was having a a romantic encounter with. And part of what we did in the scene was that we cut the dress off of them. And so it's, in some ways, it's an homage to quilting traditions. And I saw the G's Bend quilt show that the Whitney had up in, 
I want to say the 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 late 90s perhaps and one of the things that floored me about that show was the there was there were a few denim quilts there and I I had that I had a moment of suddenly realizing how those objects you know took something like a, a piece of clothing that you saw someone a neighbor a family member walking around in and then you know a week later you were sleeping under it and the blue piece is something that i started making i would say in maybe 2012 and it has sort of moved with me from various studios from one place to another and had things added to it over that time and finally by finally in 2018 I've been looking at it on the wall there for so long actually Jamila was the person who sort of turned to me and was like well what about this and I was like oh well I don't I don't I don't know if that's even done yet and and Jamila was just like it's done <laughs> Jamila James, the curator of the show. Jamila James. And as in so many things, she was right. And it has been an interesting test case for me of like making something that is not in and of itself programmatic, but the result of things kind of drifting together over time. So in that way, yes, maybe it does sort of it does sort of balance and equal and equalize those signifiers, but it's also it's also a bunch of other things. I mean, the the ground that everything on is felt, and I have you know early on in my work, I was using I was using felt a fair amount, and uh, just this past year, I was asked to do a talk on voice at. Uh, idea. And so I was sort of went back into it and was sort of thinking about felt again and thinking about like his rhetorical relationship to materials and storytelling through the materials and what that means in relationship to quilting. You could extend that to his physical relationship too. I mean, doesn't he play with the wolf with, you know, while cover covered in, in felt or textile? Yeah. 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 He's wrapped up in a, he's wrapped up in, and that is, yeah, I think that's something well, there's a whole there's a whole other thing about boys, but but so that that piece ended up being this kind of condensation, I think, of all of these varied impulses over time. And I kind of I like that it's in the show, and I like that it's where it is because it doesn't have really a kind of easy story. And I think it's a kind of it's it's a sort of entanglement of many stories, and it provides a kind of like breathing space. I think in the midst of what are very often very densely packed pieces. It's also a piece that insists or asks the viewer to consider your work in in a broader history, uh, within broader art histories. I mean, anytime an artist makes an all-blue work, you know, which this piece, with the exception of maybe, you know, 12 square inches, is an art smart viewer is going to think of Eve Klein. There are we're going to talk about some places where I think you're you're very plainly taking aim at some artists or including some artists. As you do a piece like this, are you thinking of Eve Klein or does that just come in accidentally because there's so much blue here? 
Um, I'm thinking more of Derek Jarman. And in 90, um, 95, I did, a, I did a show in London that was in many ways explicitly concerned with the unexpected death of my partner at the time, Philip Horvitz. And one of the pieces that I made for that uh, for that show is a video, uh, which is not in the current show, called Blue Cruise. And it is a, a video where the only image is a three-second loop of the disclaimer that uh, is at the beginning of uh, William Friedkin's movie Cruising. And then the soundtrack is me recreating the soundtrack of Derek Jarman's film Blue, a film in which he sort of famously is talking about, you know, sort of the the dissolution of his of his consciousness and his life as he uh, reached the sort of final stages. Initially, what I heard from someone who had some connection to Jarman is that the color that the Jarman's film is is just the color blue. And initially it was supposed to be a static shot of an Eve Klein painting. And then that proved not to be possible, and and uh, they they went another way with it. Another thing that may be important for people to understand about the work is that I make these things in order for me to figure out these connections myself. So often I will be surprised that an idea pops up in a piece after I'm looking at it for a while, and I and I'll sort of be like, oh, that's. That's why I put those things together at that time. And I think that's the case with a lot in seeing the show altogether, that that sort of revival of all of these different impulses that sort of came together in these objects and that then I'm still sort of finding things within them. And of course, I just love any artwork that is going to play um, a light blue hanky off of an American flag. <laughs> Google it, kids. Your work has, since uh, the late 1980s, engaged with the aesthetics of kink communities. Kink communities have always been eagerly and proudly and routinely transgressive. And, and indeed, one of the great things about kink communities is that they make transgression routine. It's 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 what the thing is about. It's some you know one level. And I wonder if, as you were finding the leather and later other kink communities, if at various parts of your life you found that routine transgressiveness to be something that could inform how art could be made. Because, of course, art, too, is often about transgressing norms. Well, I don't, I don't see those two spheres as separate. And so I guess I would say that a big part of what my work is is helping people who operate in those differing communities to see that, in fact, they are doing the same thing. Yeah, I think I'm getting at that. Yeah, or I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would even say that within particular identifications, it's no guarantee that people see themselves as, as transgressive. Like, I know plenty of people who are very involved in BDSM communities, for example, who 
in no way see themselves as wanting to transform society or see themselves as outside of society. They are indignant that their particular predilection does not afford them equal access to the same benefits that they would get from the rest of their republicanism or their patriarchal nature or, you know, there, there are people who are into dominance and submission because they believe that, that women are naturally submissive, for example. So I, I think that there's the, the legal status that people may be afforded doesn't automatically map onto their ideological status or the way that they see themselves in the world. And so for me, I'm always excited for the to to meet the people in whatever community who have fun like fucking with boundaries and messing things up and are expanding their conception of what the society and what social interaction could be. A lot of your work that plays with addresses includes kink aesthetics embraces, uh, lives within the aesthetics of minimalism and post-minimalism as well. It's industrial, it's machined, it's pared down, shiny surfaces, hard materials. Um, Hand of the artist is often absent, on and on and on. As best I can tell, and this could be wrong, the earliest piece in which you use gear from the kink world, as opposed to referring to it in other ways, is Ankle Wrist Ankle from 1988. Was sending up minimalism and post-minimalism part of part of your your intent i grew up steeped in all of that stuff yeah and so i think that i would rather talk about artists than necessarily minimalism and maybe that some of that is the um is the graduate graduate program teacher in me but i see so many young people who the first thing they figure out in the art world is that is that minimalism is going to be their punching bag, usually without having seen any minimal works <laughs> at all, and not even really being able to tell you what the difference is between Richard Serra, uh, you know, and 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 Donald Judd and uh, any number of other people, and so, you know, or Fred Sandback. So I don't. I think the language of minimalism, to the extent that I received it in the 70s, was presented as being coextensive with the language of the Bauhaus. And so one of the things that I was sort of trying to point out with those works from the, from the mid to late 80s was, oh, you know, the design language of the Bauhaus with the old chestnut of form following function this is exactly the design aesthetic of BDSM, right? Where you where you can you can fit yourself into the structure that is suggested to you by the object that's in front of you. So you made a work about that. So let me let me let me bring it up. Uh, Rest Restraint chair from 1989, which is a Marcel Breuer chair that has leather cuffs and such attached to it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you just kind of described that piece is a really good example of. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I think that also one of the things that was interesting to me about sexual bondage is that it's a 
form of sculpture. It is an, an eroticization of a pose, of putting someone, of of uh, of putting someone in a particular space, in a particular pose. And when I talked earlier about embodiment, part of the erotics of being a bondage bottom is the imagining of oneself as that sculpted object. And so, again, this is a, a situation where I, I see those things functioning in the same way in these two different areas that I operate in. And so I want to, I, I, I want to be the bridge there to allow people to understand um, that these two things are not radically different from each other, but in some ways were invented by people who lived through the same sorts of times, right? And so they didn't, they didn't shed all of their preconceptions and all of their design knowledge when they went into the bedroom or went into the dungeon. So I have two questions about the jump off what 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 you just said. But before I get there, the the one of the things I love about restraint chair is it doesn't just tweak modernist design. It's also kind of carries within it a critique of the old '80s San Francisco thing about all the gay men in San Francisco having a certain uniform. Just like kind of modernist design was very happy to live within stainless steel and black leather and play them off off of each other. Uh, so you were talking a moment ago about uh how in kink communities how there's an aesthetics to say bondage that a, a figure can be put into aesthetically pleasing positions and put on display Art, artists had noticed this before most famously robert maplethorpe did you think through back then in the 80s and 90s whether or not you had to address avoid engage not engage maplethorpe or were you disinterested and just sped by it no i mean i think that that's that is the sort of retroactive filing system speaking then it is like i lumped i lumped maplethorpe in with george platt lines and Paul Cadmus and and an entire strain in, for lack of a better word, gay male art that basically looked to neoclassicism that asserted that the that the history of gay men was the history of ancient Greece. And so the you know, that it was a sort of return to classical form and uh and symmetry and beauty that that was going to be the thing that actually made gay subject matter serious and i'm i just it it that has always left me cold and always been irritating to me as a as both as a sort of intellectual formulation but also as a as a kind of political position because I think it is it ultimately is the thing that leads gay men to fully embrace pa things like patriarchy and and racism. And, you know, I mean, we'd see that, obviously. And and, you know, uh, Maplethorpe has been critiqued over and over again for, you know, if there was a if there was a gay photographer that I was more interested in, it was like Jimmy DeSanta. In a conversation you had with Mark Alice Durant in 2013, 
you said that someday you hope to write a book about how the rise of kink culture and the rise of body-oriented performance art paralleled each other. I think that's an interesting idea. I think at least in terms of heterosexuals finding kink communities, which of course it existed before Hetz found them. I think I'd co-sign that observation. What what do you think that that paralleling means? Why why do you think it happened? I think it happened as as part of the new left in the in the late 50s and and early 60s with people who were attempting to synthesize Marx and Freud. And, and we can have our, like, many, many, many arguments about, like, what we think of both of those figures as thinkers. But there was a gradually more and more popularization, popular notion that, that bodily freedom was linked to societal freedom that societal repression was paralleled psychological repression. And so I think that both the work of people like Carolee Schneeman and, and, and Vito Acconci is, is quite deliberately tried to take on the consequences of ideologies acting on people's bodies and what happens when you try to do something else with that. I think that the leather and kink culture was people acting on that same impulse without it happening in galleries, without the sort of ultimate ultimate, um, triangulating of a presumed viewer. And so I think that those impulses are the same. I, and I think we're still living with that legacy. People who want to actually transform our relationship to our bodies and to our society and people who, for lack of a better term, are fine with how society is currently configured and just want to be left alone, say. is often the way that they, they say it. I want the government out of my bedroom. And... Those two strains in the culture have been there for a quite a long time, I would say, but but reached a kind of peak in the in in the late 50s and, and early 60s. You know, my first Broadway show was Hair, right? <laughs> and and um, you know, which my parents took me to when i was i mean it it was 69 so you know i was 9 years old and so that you know that tends to give you a kind of blueprint for and you know what a kind of utopian impulse is switching gears a teeny bit but not entirely your work often aestheticizes violence or the promise/threat of violence to me it seems like in works like chains 2 a drawing from 2000 that's in the show that one of your interests is in dismantling violence as as a threat in in thinking about and making it less threatening is is that something you think about i mean i'm someone who's here because of generations of institutional and and colonial violence i mean that that's that is baked into my 
my presence and my I wouldn't say my psyche, but so then the question is not, you know, how do you avoid that? But but what do you do with it? It's there. You know, this country would not be what it is without enormous amounts of unpaid, you know, coerced labor. And all of us benefit from that, even though we may feel like we're not benefiting from it individually. So what do we do with that? And And I think that... I would draw a distinction because I do think that I don't think the work is so much concerned with violence as it is concerned with control and with power. Well, one of the things I say, I mean, when I'm when I'm sort of teaching in like kink communities is that, you know, power is not a problem unless it's fixed and only operates in one way. One of the things that is is useful about BDSM is that it makes power and control visible by, by it being articulated by the participants and then allows them to play with that. And I think that's what I'm getting at in the work, right? That you play with that and make it exist both ways in, in the work. Yeah. That's different than violence. Violence, to me, is an unexpected, unconsented to circumstance, right? That, uh, that you, your reaction is like shock or dismay or, you know, but you did not, you know, there, the, the power in that situation is not mobile, is not shared. It's ex it's excised by one participant on the other. Uh, let's talk about bunnies and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and related works. And yes, that transition was abrupt on purpose. The first bunny I know of in your work is a drawing from 83 or 84-ish in which a large bunny, at least relative to what else is in the drawing, is surrounded by, by cactus, saguaro maybe. And I realize that I'm asking you to remember something about a fairly obscure work from 30-something years ago. But as best I can tell, that work was kind of an outlier and you wouldn't come back to rabbits until the very end of the 80s or early 90s. Am I getting that right? Mm -hmm. So at the risk of, again, asking you to remember something that there's no reason you should remember, do you have any idea why you got started with a rabbit in 83 or 84? I mean, I was at CalArts. I was, you know, making, I was making big drawings. I was trying to figure out what to do. It was like, it really was one of those days of like, I don't know what to draw. So I, I'd sort of like, you know, that, that image popped into my head and I, and I put it down. But really, and, and that is often a way that things happen in the work, um, that there will be something that shows up at some point, and then um, years later, I can sort of figure out, you know, I'm making other work, and I start to figure out, like, what that pop-up was about. But I, I think that particular, like, CalArts drawing is really just evidence of like, okay, well, here's the visual noise that's in my head <laughs> at any particular time. And like, as a desperate grad student, like, what are you going to make a picture of? It was, it was contentious enough that I was like making big drawings. You have talked about uh, before a lot about your use of bunnies and tricks and trickster mythology, whether it's Br'er Rabbit or other trickster myths. Do you remember when you became interested in or paid attention to trickster stories? Again, it's like the stuff that 
I read and was read to me by family members growing up was, you know, it was a lot of the stuff that I imprinted on. So it was the Oz books. It was Alice in Wonderland. It was Uncle Wiggly stories, which I don't think people necessarily know so much about. But those were kids books where there's a rabbit character who's Uncle Wiggly and also the Br'er Rabbit stories. So, you know, basically anything that Dover Books printed, my parents could afford. I mean, God bless. No, I'm I'm not joking about that. Like, God bless Dover Books because that, you know, my folks didn't have a lot of money, but they were always very in very into me reading. And and those are books that they could afford. So all of that stuff was sort of, and again, watching, you know, cartoons at home in the afternoon. So watching Looney Tunes and watching Bugs Bunny and, you know, and, and Daffy Duck and all of that, of all that stuff, that is sort of provides the bedrock for, you know, where you end up drawing your visual language from. To me, it's, I, I think it's very similar to the way that I think, you know, a lot of Philip Guston's visual language is drawn from George Harriman's comic strip Crazy Cat. And when you look at those late Gustins, the horizon line is the same horizon that's there in Crazy Cat. And the and a lot of the ways that brushstrokes are laid down are very similar to, um, to Harriman's sort of hatch marks. And I think that there's that stuff that you grow up with that is part of your visual syntax, regardless of whether or not you choose to draw on it consciously. I, in some ways, it would be like, I think for a, a kid that was born in the 60s, how would you not have cartoon animals as part of your, as part of your thinking? Uh, or, or in the 80s for, I mean, Scooby-Doo and Tom and Jerry for me, right? I mean... I, yeah, exactly. So I think what you're saying is that you only much later began to consider those pop culture stories within a trickster framework and that the trickster framework may not have meant much to you at all. Well, that it was possible. It, I mean, it was certainly something that I ended up like learning about later on as I started to learn more about African-American culture in a more formal way. And also, you know, started to read read more sort of cultural theory it is the willingness to take that stuff seriously, I guess. And, and, and for me, the, what I call my work is the process through making things and taking actions by which I start to understand why certain things are important or appealing or pleasurable for me. There are two extremely famous rabbits in art history, one contemporary to your life and one not. Um, there is Durer's 1502 watercolor of typically called Young Hare, um, and there is Jeff Koons's 86 rabbit. Were either important to you, are either important to you? Did either of them provide contexts that you wanted to address and subvert? I would give you two other examples. One Boyce's, uh, the the dead hair that Boyce was explaining pictures to, which was something that I was aware of, I think, fairly early on. Like, there, like in, my, in my high school art nerdery, one of the things that attracted us to Boyce was that Boyce made all of these multiples that you could own 
that were really cheap, like the postcards and and all that stuff. And so it was like, oh my god, you could ha you could like here's this thing that's like at the Museum of Modern Art, but you could also have one, and it's the same thing, and that's really cool. And so knowing about like Boyce explaining pictures to a dead hair, I feel like that was also in there. And then also the something that I've talked about before, which is the Alice in Wonderland sculpture in in Central Park, which is the Mad Tea Party, and is right by the um, the boat pond there. And I used to go there that, again. That was something that I would go to with my parents, and it was amazing to me because it was a sculpture that allowed me to be inside of a story that I loved. And there is, and the March Hare is there as part of the, you know, part of the characters in that. So I had a, I had a much more, um, I think, fruitful and engaged relationship with that sculptural hair than I did necessarily with Coons's. Was there a point at which you thought, gosh, I'm doing bunnies, Coons did one, should I, must I think of that in terms of my work and address it? That piece is one of the last times that his work was interesting. But one of the reasons why I went to San Francisco um, after graduate school instead of moving back to New York was precisely because I wanted to not get caught in the trap of everybody is thinking about this artist, so I need to think about this artist. Everybody is thinking about this issue, so I need to respond to this issue, which is sort of the 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 false consensus of New York. At it's and and it it is more of like a false consensus globally at this point, but it but at that time it was certainly centered in New York. Works art historically too, but yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that is. I think I think that that is a dead end for artists who you choose to populate your interior argument gallery with, like who you're fighting with at any particular time or who you're who you're engaging with at any particular time. That should really be dictated by you and not by everybody around you. Totally hear it. Still, for the record, there are lots of ways in which your mini bunnies and rabbits um, are opposites to Coons. Yours can be quite big. They can be literally inhabitable. Yours are soft. His are hard. His is machined. Yours are literally handled. I mean, there are lots of, you know, I'm not saying any of that was motivational. I'm just saying there are lots of... You know, you can, you can see yourself reflected in his. And, and maybe, uh, but you can never be inside of it. And whereas mine, in theory, you could be inside of. I mean, I would say that somebody who, an, an artist who I had a, a much more complex relationship to would be Mike Kelly. And, and I think that the, um, I can't remember, are they the dialogue pieces? The, the pieces that Mike made that were stuffed animals on blankets with like kind of recordings of them talking back and forth that had a much bigger impact on me in terms of in terms of thinking you know I Mike is still an artist like I think every artist has the the people where they get an idea and then like you start to like you go around and like you suddenly see like an old piece of somebody else's and you're like oh 
God, all right, they already did it. It's like, and and a, they did a much better version of it. And I still feel that with Mike Kelly. I think that that work, you know, continues to be important and 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 moving in a way that is, I think, in some ways, like too painful for people to acknowledge. In 2003, you made a work that uh, takes kind of a double briarwood pipe type form uh, with plastic. There are two stems sticking out the sides. Um, it's a 2003 sculpture. The idea, I think, first comes into your work in a 1986 drawing. It's a work that recalls to me the form of an apse of a church that 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 you have queered, and I wonder if that was if 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 there's anything in that relationship to ritual and ceremony and all those other things too. No, it has more to do with like a sawn off tree trunk, I think, in terms of its in in terms of my thinking about it as a form. It also is a functioning pipe. And one of the things that was going on at that time was that I was very involved with the pipe and cigar fetish community. And so that pipe is made by uh, a really sort of uh, famous pipe maker in that community, J.M. Boswell. It's based out of Pennsylvania. I designed it and commissioned it from him. And they're in an edition of three, one of which was made as a birthday present for Thor Stockman, who's a good friend of mine and who is the person who introduced me to that community. So it's a it's a pipe that functions. The people on either side of it can smoke it at the same time, or um, you kind of have to alternate pipes, uh, alternate puffs on the stem so that so that you're either one of you is drawing on the pipe at any particular moment. So I think if it if there was going to be any sort of uh, church reference, it would be that it's a, it's a form of communion, a form of connection there, smoking together. The next piece um, I'd like to learn more about is a piece called Baby Baby that features lots of stainless steel, mops on either side of the piece, if you will, and containers of tar on, on kind of stainless shelves. The two mops read like Warhol wigs. Intentional? Yes, that is. They are the actual mops that roofers use to spread tar on roofs. But I, but I couldn't. I'm. It's. It's. You know, really hard to miss that uh, resemblance. I think. And that piece also sort of suspended above the table are a pair of wrist cuffs. Bended and joined by a chain, yeah. Exactly. So it's this, one of the things that was happening around 2000 is that I was making, I was trying to make work that looked at the idea of being in a couple. What are sort of the delights and perils and distresses of being coupled? And so that piece in some way points towards extreme objectification it points towards possible notions of mutual torture and you know and then at the at the same time i think that there's that sort of glamour from the fiberglass mops uh, there's a piece in the show with a uh, closed circuit tv on the floor with a little camera on top of it it's called wrong banyan 
Is that uh, an address of Namjoon Pike, and if so, why? It is. It's my take on. I guess. I guess that piece is just called Buddha Watching TV. Yeah, they're kind of a series of them. Yes, it is. It's called Wrong Banyan in reference to the an in to the tree that the Buddha sat under for enlightenment. But the actual functioning of that piece is that there's a tall pole with a sort of white like little miniature Christmas tree on it and then a stuffed character that this sort of stuffed animal that I've designed that I call a mopes m-o-p-e-s and that character is sort of hanging from the tree not sort of it definitely is <laughs> it is it yeah that character is hanging from the tree and when you look into uh, the camera and and monitor our position in such a way that when you look into it, you yourself are positioned under the tree. And I was thinking about those the lynching photographs that were starting to receive much more cultural attention around that time. And and the way the the kind of bemused expressions that white people have in those photographs of or the celebratory expressions that white people have in those in in those photographs and and the idea of like uh, so are we looking at art to see ourselves are we looking at art to you know what like not all contemplation leads to enlightenment right some of it is a, a kind of closed circuit that allows us to objectify and dispose of other of other people and i think that there's a kind of optimism and you know a, a tempered optimism in the in the pike piece that i was feeling particularly i don't know if i would say cynical but i but i was feeling kind of i was feeling critical of in thinking about that did you pick pike's move because it allowed you to implicate the viewer Yes, and because it uh, it also there's something elegant in the design of that piece that is you know that 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 pairs with I think the the nods to modernist design that are there in the other you know in 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 other parts of my work. We talked about bunnies. I didn't bring up the bunny suits or or the air quotes costumes you put on. You know, one of the, one of the things that's fairly constant in those is that they envelop your entire body. Why is your whole self going into them important, as it were? There is something satisfying about not having to deal with social cues, right? If I'm if I'm most of my performance work is not necessarily about me as a performer as much as it is about me providing the circumstance for people to examine their own reaction. Having a character kind of allows, uh, facilitates that. People react to the character. In some ways, it's it, it can be disarming. I, I want to close uh, with a couple of pieces in which you use or reference white cloth. One is a piece um, that uh, is made up of actual textiles, Triple Surrender from 2004. 
Um, another is a drawing, the grind from the Bunny Group series of 96, 97. There's lots of white cloth in, in, in lots of the work, but I thought I'd try to just give us two works to hang the next question on, which is white cloth is a really loaded material in American history and culture. And it has been a constant in your work for probably a 20-year period, maybe longer. I've talked with other artists on the show over the years who have talked about Gary Simmons comes to mind, who have talked about kind of the riskiness, if you will, of using white cloth, especially with eyes cut out of it, for example, and sometimes feeling that at certain times in American history that got to be too loaded a reference or too literal a reference. But you have gone back to white cloth a lot, and um, and I wonder what about it attracted you as as an artistic interest and why you've uh, stuck with it as it were there certainly are works that that when we were pulling the show together jamila and i sat down and looked and 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 went through it and we're like okay is what does it mean to show this work now right is this the right thing to be showing now i think that that for me that white cloth is both the you know the 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 reference to the clanhood it's also the reference to you know the peanuts kids as ghosts right and the sort of cartoon joke of throwing a bedsheet over you and cutting eyes out to make a costume in some ways it's sort of when i think about it it's like one of the first costumes that i learned Right. And so the fact that a white cloth with holes in it so quickly moves back and forth between those two things, um, something that is something that is ter terrifying and something that is also, you know, a symbol of one's own death. So that's uh, that's certainly one of the things that that's gone into it coming up over and over again. Nayland Blake, thanks very much. Thank you. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the WEX galleries. Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is on view through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents An Impressionist Autumn, a pair of extraordinary exhibitions that celebrate French avant-garde painting and capture a who's who of the Impressionist, Post-Impressionist, and Early Modern movements. See paintings by pivotal artists like Picasso, Van Gogh, and Monet, who sparked the major art movements of the late 19th to early 20th century, in Monet to Picasso, a very private collection. Then step into Berta Morisot, Impressionist Original, to discover Berta Morisot's portraiture, her focus on the life of women in 19th century Paris, and her singular role as one of the founding members of the Impressionist group. On view through January 12th. Visit mfah.org slash impressionistautumn for more. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation. 
a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. Now on view is Susan Phillips, Seven Tears. Turner Prize-winning artist Susan Phillips is best known for her works that explore the potential of sound, often including her own untrained voice, to define space and its interaction with architecture. The exhibition includes a newly commissioned installation, Too Much I Once Lamented, created for the water court at the Pulitzer's Tato Ando Design Building. Other works, Poetic Meditations on Loss, Hope, and Longing, animate the museum's galleries and surrounding architecture, creating a constellation of singular, immersive environments. Susan Phillips' Seven Tears is on view through February 2, 2020. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Anne Hamilton, who joins me to talk about her recent work. She's included in Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin, at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus. The exhibition presents work by three Ohio-born artists whose careers have overlapped with the Wexner's own 30-year history. Elements of the exhibition extend beyond and outside the Wexner and across the Ohio State University campus and Columbus. It was curated by Michael Goodson with Lucy I. Zimmerman and Kristen Helmick Brunet and remains on view through December 29th. Hamilton also recently had a new installation on view at the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute. We'll discuss that, too. Anne Hamilton. Welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Happy to be here. Both of the new projects we'll be talking about, When an Object Reaches for Your Hand at Ohio State and Aon at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, address history and material culture, at least how surviving material is saved, often hidden, and might again be seen and considered. So it's very much in the sandbox of, of things you've made work about for decades now. And I think you first came to have these this specific interest in archives in around 2015 or so with the show at the University of Washington's Henry Art Gallery. What about going into archives to make visible the held but invisible interested you? I think it would be joined to whenever I would make a site visit for any kind of project, you walk around, you put your finger up in the air, you smell, you, you're you just trying to gather into your body and into your attention, you know, what is there. And so when I was invited to work in at the University of Washington with the Henry Art Gallery, I was like, well, I'm in the middle of a university. This is an art gallery with a condition within a large research institution. And that institution has all these different collections. Similarly, an earlier project with the same kind of question when I was at University of Kansas in Lawrence, working with the Spencer Museum. And I realized that that part of what I was responding to is obviously the architectural space and the contemporary circumstance, but also these collections that you do not see. And came up with a process for imaging them, making them visible, sharing them, putting them into a kind of circulation that isn't their normal existence. And and I started thinking about, well, how can the material, how can these collections and what is in the collections become the actual material of the work, not from the perspective of a, necessarily a curatorial project, but lend itself to... I know, kind of form of imaging that I was working with. What I think when I was at the Henry, 
we went over to the Natural History Museum, which is also the functions as the state natural history museum. And the director there and the collections managers were all incredibly open to letting me open the drawers, look around. And that led to actually scanning many of the birds and the mammals that were in the collection. But what really motivated it was seeing them prepare these marmots. And so I'm looking at this no longer alive animal that's turned on its back with its hands up, and they look just like mine. And there's this completely felt emotional response that happens in that connection, not just with a thing that is animate but no longer alive and oneself. And so I think I, I started I started thinking about well how do I how do I share that recognition or how do I image this thing that I'm feeling and can you bring that into that encounter into the project and into what ultimately becomes an exhibition project? That's interesting. Emerson kind of writes about that same same idea, that same recognition across species, if you will, in in nature in 1836. Uh, it's an idea that has interested humans for a long time. So how did that interest migrate to other archival material, uh, archival material that is not a former animal? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, because I also, when I was at the University of Washington, I also worked in the special collections area of the children's books. And I was quite interested in how, in that instance, well, we learn to read by making the sounds of animals, and that's where we make some of our first sounds is to imitate the animals that language then distances us from. And that became a whole other part of the book that led to another material aspect where we were selecting text. But I think what happened partly is that I'm a person that so trusts process and the process of being in the archives with these pretty portable tools. I, at the time, was working with, and still am, these early generation flatbed scanners. They're lightweight. They probably are a model of scanner that was given away at some point when you bought a computer. Yeah, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I and mean, by yeah. early generation, we're not talking the 60s. We're talking... No, <laughs> it's more recent than that. But because it ha- because they have a shallow depth of field and sometimes really wild color things would happen, I became very interested in how what is in focus is only what touches the glass and the light. And so it's obviously lensless photography, but what it renders is a sense of touch. And so when I was working with the animals, I was wanting to also put the vulnerable underside, those hands, the breast on the scanner. And so you see, in one case, a bird, but you you feel the weight of that press. And I think you almost feel more because there's less visual information in it. And so I became really fascinated by how you could put any number of things on these scanners and they transform. Something happens. Something is rendered tactile. And that's also so much the basis of a lot of my work. How does something become felt? How are you touched? How do you touch an exchange? 
and it also it became a way for, or it has become in the last couple of years, a way for me to work where I'm not dependent on having a whole huge building and an accompanying budget and a like big team to pull something together. But it allows, I don't know, I started, I think, in the beginning thinking about it like, oh, this is my form of drawing, which is also a way I've thought about reading. And that this is this allows me to be very responsive. It gives me something to do, and I'm a good Midwesterner, and I like being busy and having something to do. And, you know, the curiosity of... I mean, it'll, I can bring this process into a place, and it can open all sorts of doors that might not otherwise be open. Last summer, I was working in Portugal, and I was lucky enough to then have access to the Sacred Arts Museum and an archaeology museum and numerous church collections. In each one of those places, of course, then there's a whole series of conversations that unfold, and it also brings people into the process, because I'm always asking for help. <laughs> but it's it's partly, I think, not just an interest in the archive, but having found a process that allows me to actually go into all different situations. In terms of making the images you described using these not obsolete, but not in use, shall we say, old scanners, were you intentionally revisiting the way cyanotypes, such as Anna Atkins's, were, were made historically? I don't think it was intentional. I think it really came out of the other photography, working with the membrane that I had from Bare Material Sciences, where I was photographing people. And it, it has the same quality. When you stand behind it, you only what actually touches the surface is in focus. And so it changes the condition of photography because when you stand back there, you you know a camera's there. You can hear me talking and directing you just kind of to keep moving, but you can't see anything. And so maybe this is a bit of a non sequitur, but so what I saw in these is that a kind of not someone presenting themselves for the camera, but someone listening and a different kind of self-consciousness than I think we normally project for the camera. And But it was that this material, like the scanner, was only, it only rendered what actually touches in focus. And so, it, you know, when I started working with the scanners, it was recognizing that there was a similarity between those. And then I started working with the uh, wand scanners, which is even more, it's much more like drawing because you have the object, you have this bar of light in your hand and you're breathing and your hand has all sorts of grain to it and it's responding to the thing. And so there's this, each time the light passes over the object, which is not a stable thing, a different image is made. And so that process of making these is very live for me. And uh, we worked with both of those kind of scanners when we were working in Chicago at the Oriental Institute with the Mesopotamian temple figures. There is quite often a human presence uh, literally within your work, either in terms of how you activate the viewer by, say, handing them a small radio 
or having a person sitting at a desk erasing text or having visitors to an installation swinging from, bad phrase ahead, giant textile curtain of sorts. Right, the swings, yeah. Yeah, so how did you consider the human presence in in the Chicago and Columbus, the new Chicago and Columbus pieces? Uh, in Chicago, because we installed those images on a very large scale as semi-transparent films in the ceiling of the Mansueto Library, which is a contemporary reading room that is like a glass. It's like a glass egg almost over your head. It's really an extraordinary piece of architecture. And underneath are eight stories of books that are robotically fetched when you, you know, put your request in. And really the piece is not only the images, but it's the images in relationship to the congregation of readers and researchers that are actually working under it. And it they become more or less present as the light changes over the day. And what happens in many ways is it inverts the relationship between, you know, us looking into the vitrine at an object, a historical object, and these figures which have these fairly large eyes and and to me have an incredibly contemporary sense of animation, they actually look down on you. And so they're really in relationship to reading and the books they're reading, you know, are underground just as these figures once were when they were excavated from the temples. So it isn't that there's necessarily an active, any kind of interactive physical thing happening except the presence of hopefully your awareness as you study and work under them. There was actually a really interesting comment that Laura Stewart, the curator, shared with me when she was talking to a student in the reading room who, when we were installing, was looking at him and going, are these video? And obviously the images are fixed. They're in film. And yet what happens is the sky is moving and you are moving. And so this sense of something being alive is generated from the condition uh, of their presence there in that way. And at the, in the project at the Wexner Center, when an object reaches for your hand, I wanted to find a way, again, to share these. So the 70-some images that we selected from a really several-year-long process of scanning both in collections at the university. I realize I teach here, I live here, but I have never been over to the Medical Sciences Archive, and I had never really been behind the scenes in the geology building. And there's all this cool stuff. And, you know, unless you know it's there or you have research in that area, you you don't see it. And I started thinking about, well, how do we make, you know, some of this visible and, as you said, shareable? So, so the material form of it becomes very important. They're printed the scale of like a large open newspaper. So they approach, your body's familiar with that scale. You respond to that. They're set out on stands in stacks of a thousand. So each image has a thousand or more copies and they're folded in the middle. So the way that paper rests on the stand 
takes the form of a book, which we're very familiar to. We know how to approach. It lays the image, not puts the image not on the wall, but actually in your lap. And then people are invited to take, to keep, but maybe more importantly, adjacent to the gallery, there's a set of tables and a bin for mailing these either through campus mail to someone you know or via the USPS. And it's been really interesting to watch how many people are sending these things off in the world. And so it changes how you then look at the images because you're not saying, oh, what do I want? (laughs) You know, my greedy self. But, oh, this makes me think of so-and-so out in California and I'm going to send this to them. And this one makes me think of this person. I wake up now at three in the morning thinking, oh, I have to send, I have to send that one image <laughs> to my friend, you know, wherever. And so it changes then the way we experience those images, not just that they're horizontal and materialized in this way, but that there's this circulation process. And that circulation process is also inspired in part because the Wexner Center is across the central campus oval from the Thompson Library, which is our central library. And so many of the materials in the, or the objects in the images come from special collections. And some, I think 10 of the stands and images are now installed in this really incredibly beautiful book stack that has glass on either side. So the books are visible as you walk into the main library up six floors, I think. And when the exhibition finishes at the Wexner, the rest of the stands and the images will actually migrate over to continue to be circulated through the library. You mention the university's mission and how a university, an an archival nonprofit's mission is to make, is to save this work, to conserve it, and to make it available. And you reference that in, or at least that is referenced in various texts that Ohio State has sent out related to the work. Was that your idea? And if so, were you interested in underscoring the roles the role of institutions and their role in the lives of human cultures at a time when such institutions are under constant attack from the political right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I I mean, there were were a couple of strong things. One, my incredible privilege to teach in a large research institution where, and, and the privilege of having access to open stacks and the and also really, I think what the way I talked about it recently is thinking about the library as the house of words and the Wexner Center as an art center as the house of images and this reciprocity between them, which you were referencing earlier when you're talking about the importance of work being painted, the visual arts work going on during the Civil War and what it opened socially. So you know, I think the humanities are under siege in so many places. But I was at a talk, I think last year, where our provost, who's a biologist, said, you know, we can do the science, but the artists and the humanities, they have to tell the stories. And we need each other. And I think that, you know, when 
you experience something that does generate what I would call felt response, what comes from that are other curiosities and interests and openness and we need to cultivate that and nurture it and support it. Where would we be without the poets? Well, speaking of, of historical narratives, your work has quite often made not just history, but historical narratives present within a body of work. There's, of course, I mean, I could, I could cite a lot of examples, but just maybe the most famous one, the famed Indigo Blue, which you created in Charleston, South Carolina, and which is now at SFMOMA which refers to, to uh, agricultural production, labor, exploitation, how, how materials like indigo transform and are developed through decades and centuries. This latest body of work that you've been working on since 2015 or so is less about narratives than about the objects that professionals, historians, develop into narratives, a kind of burrowing in, if you will, or a burrowing down, if you will, was there an intentionality to addressing the stuff out of which narratives are made because it's stuff you've sometimes mined in your own work? I think that the questions that motivated me as I started thinking about how is an image tactile and knowable the way an object in your hand is. And so part of the some of the images that are in this particular project come from as you say, the institutional collections. But a lot of them also come from my staying with people and visiting people and scanning things that they have on their shelf in their homes and that they live with. So I very consciously wanted to mix those because they're they're there for different reasons. So there might be a particular collection of fossils for study, but the one that you pick up on the beach somewhere and sits on your shelf for 30 years as a presence arrives right from a different place. And I wasn't, you know, wasn't so interested necessarily in the personal memory that might be attached to these things, but that the thing itself has a kind of liveliness. And I think that we are in a, a screen time, obviously a digital time, and, but we're still visceral material <laughs> collections of organs and cells and everything. And, and I think that how we think is in response to a material world. And if we lose the stories and the literacies of those materials, we have lost so much. So one of the things that this new work does is it puts a focus on a certain degree of human control. Um, humans have identified these objects as important, have devised systems to collect and control them, control them in the sense of, of climate control, humidity, taking care of them so they last. And as someone who, uh, you know, in, in my other work as, as, as a writer, as an author who uses archives, you know, pretty much every day to not just produce this show, but, but, but to write books, I, I celebrate that. I, I, those are systems that are important to, to researching biology or to writing history. Perhaps instigated by the Henry Project, which included animals, or at least stuffed animals. I mean, animals that were actually animals that were then stuffed. <laughs> These projects also feel to me like there's an address of the present and, and climate change a little bit. 
humans are good at controlling small systems in limited space, but large systems in planetary space we really fail at. And I wonder if that's there. Definitely. I think especially in the Henry Project, in the sense that the way that those materials or the way those images were presented, which was one part of the show, they were on thick pads, like 300 thick. They were on the wall, like kind of almost hung salon style. And then people could take them. And so you started to see the residue of the ripped page that was taken. And that when that stack is gone, the image is gone, as is many of the animals. And interestingly, the two images that we were able to produce with incredible support here in Columbus in conjunction with the Wexner show, one is of a a barn owl and one is of a sandpiper. They're the scale, they're very large banners on architecture. And the day, I think after they went up or the day before, came the announcement of this new census of the loss of birds in the numbers of the billion and uh, billions and it's it's i think like the form of those images in the gallery they were stirred a little bit by the ventilation system which we directed the fan so the the paper kind of lifted a little bit from the pads and you might reach to take but our taking also moves and also destroys something and so you know how do we become aware of our own presence, our own action. I was in the middle of reading The Sixth Extinction when it had recently come out when I was working on The Henry Project. Ah, the Elizabeth Colbert book. The Elizabeth Colbert book, yes. And as I was working on that project, it has a really melancholy sense, and it's this sense of a future being lost. And this feeling that, that we're, we're kind of lemmings running towards that cliff. I also here at Ohio State, although none of it is image, this is where the Bird Polar Research Center and Lonnie Thompson's research, which is now very famous in climate science, is housed. And so those are all awarenesses. You know, if the objects are disappearing, do we, are we then only left with these images? And an image, as much as it may be felt, might be a poor replacement for the kind of embodied knowledge we actually need to make culture, be human. Finally, you and I have talked before about your interest in in textiles and how important textiles are to your work, especially when you were on the show in 2012. We'll have a link to that program on on manpodcast.com. So I'm mostly leaving alone textiles here, except to note that a number of the works you photographed slash scanned that are in the piece at the Wexner show textiles, are, are of textiles. Did this new process where you're working with the textiles, but the objects aren't textiles, the objects in the show are, you know, of these, these shallow scans, change or advance or lead you to think differently about textiles at all? I've been working for a number of years of trying to figure out how do you image the feeling of cloth that we spend, think about the extraordinary amount of time we spend touching cloth, you know, and the feel of a particular kind of sheet or shirt or the drape of something. 
And, and we talk about it cloth like it has a hand, but you really can't describe that very well. And, and it doesn't, the feeling of that doesn't image the same way very early when I started kind of inhabiting the work to some degree as a live presence. I was thinking about not the image of the body, but the condition of being a body. So what is the condition of that experience of cloth, which is our, I don't know, first architecture, our second skin? And so with some of these small objects that are scanned, actually some of them are doll clothes from friends, and because they're small enough to fit on the scanner, but when they're printed large, you really lose their original scale. And I think some of those do carry that felt sense. So it's this, it's this question to myself, like, can you image touch? And, and what, what is that quality? You know, and sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there. Anne Hamilton, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.